Welcome. You are listening to Central Synagogue's podcast, featuring sermons, lectures, and conversations from Manhattan's historic Central Synagogue. I'm Rabbi Angela Bookdahl. Each week, we invite you to listen to messages of strength and hope given by our clergy on Shabbat or Jewish holidays. You can also listen to audio recordings of other programs and lectures given at Central by subscribing to this podcast on the platform of your choice. If you'd like to watch our live stream services or learn more about our congregation, I invite you to visit us at centralsynagogue.org. We hope you enjoy this week's sermon. And raise me up to a world living, oh, safe from the storm, in the shelter of your shadow. Before the start of this new year, I led a Friday night service for 12 men in a classroom the kind with those elementary school desk chairs that the men had to squeeze into. I brought a guitar and sang some of their favorite melodies and taught them a few new ones as well. I'd never heard such spirited singing. We made kiddush and motzi over grape juice and matzah, and we asked them what they wished for in the new year. Goldberg said he was looking forward to holding his new grandson for the first time. Yaakov said he was hoping to just get rid of the negative energy he carried. As we left, Zev, a gentle soul, said this was the best service he'd attended in 30 years. I walked out into a perfect September evening The sun was setting and the sky was pink and the air was warm. And for a moment, I forgot that I was in a maximum security prison in New Jersey until I looked up and saw the barbed wire across the high fence and the watchtower looming above me. I tried to reconcile what I felt was the spiritual freedom of these men with their physical incarceration, many of them for decades more, some for life. On Yom Kippur, this day of atonement, we are offered the possibility for teshuva, for return. Teshuva requires that we extend a second chance to others and to ourselves. And if we look at the story of Jonah, our traditional Yom Kippur afternoon reading, we see how very hard it can be to forgive. God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, a city full of thieves, rapists, and murderers, and tells him to proclaim judgment on the wicked ways of the people. Because God wants to give them a chance to repent. But Jonah refuses to go, not because he thinks they won't repent, but because he is certain they will. Jonah doesn't think these people deserve a second chance from God, let alone an ounce of his compassion. So Jonah flees, and he's only compelled to go to Nineveh after spending several days of solitary confinement in the belly of a whale. When Jonah finally proclaims the judgment on the Ninevites, they do exactly as he expected. They cry out and they 
turn from their evil ways and they repent. And God, God forgives them all. But not Jonah. Jonah is distraught. He says, I would rather die than see you, God, give these criminals a pardon. I grew up in an era where everyone wanted to be tough on crime. This era birthed the unforgiving three strikes law and mandatory minimum sentences. We put people in prison for crimes that no other nation imprisons, like minor nonviolent drug offenses, and we lock people up for much longer. It was an era in which one story of Willie Horton, who committed a violent crime while on furlough, could stoke enough fear to sink a presidential campaign and caution anyone from giving a criminal a second chance. It was an era in which we disproportionately incarcerated people of color. We perpetuated a poverty trap in which black men who do not graduate high school have, are more likely to be behind bars than to be employed. The year I was born, the prison population of America was 200,000. Today, it is 2.2 million. Just in my lifetime, our prison population has ballooned by 10 times. Many years ago, when my children were young, my husband was a federal prosecutor, and it was easy for me to explain to them what he did. Daddy's job is to put the bad guys in jail. When our friend Sean, one of the most talented lawyers I know, became a public defender, I was perplexed. I asked him, aren't basically all the people you defend criminals? What do you tell your children you do every day? <laughs> I remember he said, yes, most of my clients have committed crimes. But they all deserve to be treated fairly. And most don't deserve the excessive punishment coming to them. I realize now, his job was not to represent criminals. It was to represent human beings. But I'm ashamed to say that 15 years ago, I was convinced he was wasting his time. I felt a lot like Jonah. I thought people got what they deserved. And these criminals deserve nothing but my judgment. This sermon is my attempt at Teshuvah. Many of you may be familiar with the Doe Fund. Their mission is to provide formerly incarcerated men with a second chance through a demanding program of work, training, and rehabilitation. The Doe Fund prides itself in offering a hand up, not a handout. You've probably seen Doe Fund men cleaning up in our neighborhood in their distinctive blue, ready, willing, and able uniforms. Now I want you to meet one of them, Terrence Coffey. Listen to his story. My dad was a pimp and my mom was a prostitute. I was born the seed of failure. 
And I was never given a chance to be anything but that. My life was saturated with poverty. I was put in dysfunctional schools and bounced around in foster homes. I believed in God as a child, but I knew that there were people who God loved and people like me who he didn't. As a young black man without a high school degree, I could not get access to a job, but I could get access to drugs. By 20, I was in prison. While I was in prison, I got my GED. Finally, when someone asked me if I had a high school degree, I could say yes. But they didn't ask me that. They asked if I was formerly incarcerated. There's no way out. I was in and out of prison six times, 19 years of my life. When I was 39, I was finally given a break. The Doe Fund changed the course of my life. It wasn't just a second chance. It was a first opportunity. Terrence graduated from the Doe Fund. And at 40 years old, he enrolled in Brooklyn Community College, where he graduated Phi Beta Kappa, all while working a full-time job. He then got a full scholarship to NYU where he got his bachelor's and master's degree. And now he's a professor of forensic justice at NYU. And he founded a nonprofit called Educate, Don't Incarcerate because he wants to give other children the first opportunity that he never had. I am so honored that Terrence Coffey is with us today. Along with Topeka Sam and Kempis Songster, all three of them will be part of our Yom Kippur panel of returning citizen activists. Along with our Rabbi Hilly Haber, this will occur after our morning service. I want to thank you for being with us today. As we're sitting here atoning and fasting today, as you heard so brilliantly from our rabbi, Rick Jacobs, the prophet Isaiah in our Yom Kippur Haftarah portion makes it so clear that God does not want the false piety of a fast that doesn't ultimately lead to some moral action. God wants us to loose the fetters of wickedness, let the oppressed go free, break every yoke. The lesson is, if your empty stomach today does not make you more attuned to people who don't have food on their table every day, who live in unstable homes, who suffer from abuse, addiction, who've never had an adult role model in their life, well then this is not the fast that God seeks. We must read this text on the holiest day of our year, not as prophetic poetry, but as a mandate. This fast must compel us to act on behalf of the most vulnerable in our society. And today, some of our most vulnerable are sitting in prison or are the formerly incarcerated struggling to come back to life. Whether the root problem is poverty, lack of educational opportunity, mental illness or addiction, we've increasingly turned to incarceration 
not as a last resort, but as a first response. And if you think it's expensive to run drug rehabilitation programs, or to invest in our broken schools, or to make sure that every child does not go hungry, know that any of these would be a better investment than the $300,000 that New York City spends every year to put a human being in a cage. Yes, unbelievably, New York City spends $300,000 a year on every person behind bars. But there's some progress being made in our city. Our jail population has decreased by over 50% since its peak in 1991. Now, our city's incarceration rate is half the national average. And we New Yorkers remain safer than we have been in a generation. We learned that locking more people up doesn't necessarily correlate with reduced crime. New York City is now simultaneously the least incarcerated and one of the safest cities in the country. And there's finally some political momentum on both sides of the aisle to decarcerate and reform. Last year, Governor Cuomo signed historic criminal justice reform in New York, which among other things, took aim at the practice of cash bail, which too often locked people up just for being poor. Central was very proud to play a small part in that effort. And with bipartisan support, President Trump signed the First Step Act, which has already given early release to 2,200 prisoners who un under reduced mandatory minimum sentences. I knew the political winds were shifting recently when I saw primary debates in which Kamala Harris was put on the defensive for being too rough on crime. And Joe Biden was boasting that he was once a public defender. We are most definitely in a new era. For the first time in 50 years, attitudes are shifting and we have a moral opportunity to decarcerate, not incarcerate, to humanize, not criminalize. We may not agree on every detail of how to reform the system, but meaningful change can, be can begin with each one of us. And on this holy day of repentance and forgiveness, we must forgive our brothers and sisters who have paid their time and give them a chance to return fully back to society. But as we know from the story of Jonah, God is quick to forgive, but people are not. Do you have any idea how many Americans are living with a prior arrest or conviction record? 70 million of our neighbors. A shocking one out of five Americans have a criminal record. And they are caught in a labyrinth of legal prohibitions, barred from certain professions, and in many states have permanently lost the right to vote. Many are ineligible for government assistance, for housing, for education, for food. All the things that are necessary for some basic security and stability. 
and society openly stigmatizes and discriminates against them as well. We have not forgiven them. Is it a surprise that nearly 80% of the formerly incarcerated will go back to jail within five years of their release? Without giving returning citizens the supports that they need, we're turning every sentence into a life sentence. Evie Litvak knows this truth well. She's the child of two Holocaust survivors. At 60, she was convicted for tax evasion and spent two years in two federal prisons, including stints in solitary confinement. She described the degrading procedures of daily prison life, the threats of sexual violence, the harsh work conditions. Even then, she said, being released from prison was harder than being in prison. I was handed a Greyhound bus ticket and $30. There was no place for me to go. No services to help me get a job, housing, no help for my deteriorated mental health. When Evie was released, she applied for 200 positions. And while she had a 30-year work history, she could not get even an entry-level job. She was homeless and destitute for 16 months. Evie was able to turn her life around only because an old friend stepped forward, helped her find an apartment, and sent her money every month. Through it all, she said, it was the Jewish values my parents would repeat and model throughout my childhood that stayed with me. That is, that Jews have a moral obligation to care about the dignity of every human being. It was my parents' reminder that led me to watch, learn, and record in my mind everything that happened in prison. And Evie's Jewish response was starting an organization called Witness, to mass incarceration, which gives voice to formerly incarcerated women and LGBTQ individuals and helps them re-enter society. I'm also very honored that Evie is with us today as well. Now Evie, I think would want, to, want me to point out that she looks like your typical Jewish grandmother. <laughs> there she is. Because she wants you to know this is happening in the Jewish community. She's not so different from any of us. She's a part of our family. A Deuteronomy text reinforces this very lesson. If the wicked one is to be flogged, he may be given up to 40 lashes, but no more to excess, lest your brother be degraded before your eyes. I think this single text can sum up the three most important points of the Jewish response to criminal justice. First, it does teach that everyone should be held accountable for their crime. This is not a free pass. However, we cannot make punishment excessive, and it should never degrade the fundamental dignity of any human being. 
And finally, and most importantly, the rabbis emphasize that the moment the punishment is complete, the wicked one is transformed. He becomes your brother. She becomes your sister. In our tradition, we are not defined forever by the worst thing that we've done. You don't remain the wicked one. You're brought back into the family. Every one of us can help break the yoke on 70 million brothers and sisters who seek return. Support organizations that give returning citizens opportunities for a second chance. Get involved in our efforts here at Central or in our community to support criminal justice reform. It's one of the few areas that both political parties can agree on these days. Congress called its bill the First Step Act because we all know there will have to be many more steps to break down a system that took 50 years to build up. And beyond politics, you all can help on a much more personal level to examine your own stigma that you carry. Many of you are also in a position where you're able to hire people. We at Central Synagogue have successfully hired formerly incarcerated employees, and you can too. We can't let people like Evie, people like Terrence, people like Kempis, become part of a permanently untouchable class of people, forever punished. Because ultimately, we Jews are not in the retribution business. We're in the redemption business. And because the Talmud reminds us that we all, every one of us, stands on the borderline between our merit and our sin, Teshuva is a permanent posture for us, for how we live our lives. And know this, my teshuva is bound up in your tshuva. My freedom is bound up in your freedom. When we deny people the ability to heal, to grow, to return, we deny all of us our path to our shared redemption. This is why on Yom Kippur, we recite our sins in the plural. We have sinned before you. And what do we pray right before pounding our chests with our alphabet of woe? Adonai, Adonai. Before we offer our communal litany of sins, we remind ourselves that Adonai is a God of mercy and grace. Mercy and grace. Sometimes Jews think those words are outside of our tradition but they are absolutely central to this holiday. And God's mercy and grace is there for anyone who's willing to repent, to make tshuva, to return to the goodness that's within every one of us. And right now, 
We are in a world desperately in need of more mercy and grace. Mercy being the promise that with the scales of justice, divine compassion ultimately wins. And grace being the promise that God's love doesn't have to be earned because it can never be lost, ever. It just is. And when we can begin to accept God's mercy and grace for ourselves, we can begin to accept that it is meant for everyone. No one is born a criminal. Every one of God's children is born good. And that's why God is so invested in the possibility for all of us to return. Not just the Ninevites, not just the men I prayed with in that prison classroom, but every single one of us balancing on that borderline of our merit and sin on this day. Yom Kippur, it's not only judgment day, it's also a day for second chances. God is offering you a second chance. Will you offer it to each other? Min hametsa karatia anani vamerhavia min hametsa karatia anani vamerhavia.
for listening to this edition of Central Synagogue's podcast. Be sure to subscribe so you're in the loop on future episodes. And please follow us on social media or watch our live stream at centralsynagogue.org, our Facebook page, or on national cable at the Jewish Broadcasting Service. Thanks again for joining us. (laughs) 